performative allyship versus real allyship. That's what we're discussing in today's episode, because white people, you keep asking us what you can do differently to be more anti-racist. We are spending the summer going through things in a bite-sized way so that we know the basics around the most commonly asked questions and issues around racism that we see in this country. We'd like to emphasize yet again that this is not a checklist. This is simply a primer. And if you want more, go buy our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which is full of people's stories, real history, and action steps for you to take. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. We've been best friends for 25 years, ever since we met as undergrads at Harvard. Now, Misasha is a lawyer, is married to a black man, and has very mixed race boys the world sees as black. Me, Sarah, I'm a life coach. I'm married to a white Canadian man, and I have two white presenting girls. And together, we help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. All right. So today's topic, what is performative allyship? And in a nutshell, performative allyship is where those with privilege you know, profess solidarity with a cause, but they're really talking the talk without walking the walk. So for example, oh yeah, I totally support LGBTQ equality. I totally believe in Black Lives Matter. But then besides those statements, they're not actually doing anything to look out for the real life people in their lives or in their organizations who may be directly affected by these causes. Basically, in other words, they're being hypocrites. They vocally project solidarity, but in the end, it's disingenuous. The performative ally is saying these things to make themselves or their brands look good, to hide from any potential scrutiny or questions about, you know, why they might not be supporting something. And ultimately, performative allyship and performative allies lead to harm for these groups, the groups that they're professing to help or care about. Yeah. Totally. We were asked this question in one of our events, you know, what's your opinion about performative activism on social media regarding racism? And that's one of the places that we most often see performative allyship. And so here's our answer to that, which might give you an example of what we mean when we're talking about this. Have you heard of slacktivism, right? It's activism, but really performative allyship practice through social media. It's this idea of, you know, you see a post and you quickly like it, or you share it, or you follow people, but you're really doing it just to appear woke. And I'm heavily air quoting that word because I don't like it. (laughs) Very heavy. Right. And so, or maybe you're saying, yeah, see, look at me. I, I like these things. I'm engaged in social justice issues. But in reality, you're not converting the presence on social media to any measurable changes, both in your own lives and those of your followers. So one sort of real life example of this is that infamous Instagram black square that appeared supposedly to support the Black Lives Matter movement through the use of the Black Lives Matter hashtag. But really, it amounted to the only thing that that poster potentially did to support Black Lives Matter back in the day. So there was a time, if you remember that Black Square, 28 million people did that at the same time as part of Blackout Tuesday. But what it did was it took over the hashtag Other organizers who were using the Black Lives Matter hashtag to notify people about their actual social justice initiatives that were linked to Black Lives Matter got completely drowned out. So that's a classic case of performative allyship if people didn't do anything more than just post a black square that day. So 
You know, and I, as you were saying that, I was thinking back to that Blackout Tuesday and the use of the black square. And so I would encourage everyone who's listening also to take a moment to reflect. Because have you ever felt like you've been there, that you might have done that, you know, without knowing or without really thinking about sort of the follow through of your actions? Or have you seen others do that and take a moment to reflect and say like, wow, I, you know, just pause there for a second. So I would love if in this moment you just sit there and reflect on, have I done this? Have I seen others do this? And what's been my reaction? The reason we ask that is because the next part of the conversation is this. How can you be a better white friend or even a real ally? And sort of what's the difference? Real allyship is an authentic support system where someone from outside a marginalized group advocates for those who are victims of discriminatory behavior. You know, maybe that's at an individual level or systemically and process driven. But there is an obvious, genuine attempt to offer the benefits of your privilege to those who lack it, really to advocate on that group's behalf and support them to achieve change. So to be blunt, real allyship requires you to actually do something, not just say something, but do something. Of course, like we say on our platforms, this can look like a whole host of different things. For example, not everybody has to be front and center at a big protest. But one way that real allyship can show up is like noticing who's being talked over at a meeting by someone in a dominant group and then interrupting and getting the group's attention and saying, oh, hey, I want to hear what so-and-so has to say and effectively using your privilege to get the floor and then ceding the floor to the person who was being talked over in that moment. Or another example is if you do post on social media about an issue after posting, real allyship looks like following through with a donation to an organization that is very active in this space having a tough conversation with a family member, or choosing to vote differently. But even these smaller, less noticeable actions, because again, sometimes these are very small and noticed by only one or maybe no one, right? These require you to do something because at its core, allyship demands you to challenge yourself to get a little uncomfortable, right? Or to get a lot uncomfortable. And, and this is a huge and, especially for people who really like to put their lives on social media, maybe real allyship is even something you do without posting on social media to show off how great you are in this moment. Ooh, we're being real with that. You know, for what it's worth, Misasha, I think you and I have talked about this a lot. We don't think allyship is a term you can assign for yourself. If you're doing things to like, be a good ally, then really I think it's important to take a moment and question yourself because it's about being a good human being and looking out for each other. And if people of oppressed groups call you an ally, then great bonus for you. But it's not something that you say like flag waving, like, look at me, I'm an ally. Okay. You really are doing this to be a good person. So what does it take to actually make change, right? Because if allyship is the active, it's a verb. We say this on our swag. We actually have shirts that say allyship is a verb. You know, what does it do to actually make change? And our theory is that we have to start in our own spheres. You can actually go through your day, maybe your year and think about what it is you're already doing and identifying what the spheres of influence are that you already have. So for example, do you have kids? So many ways to be stoking change here. You can be involved in the PTA. You can look at your school's library to see, or do they have a lot of books that aren't centering white characters or animals for, for that matter? 
You know, you can ask about how Thanksgiving and slavery are being taught in the curriculum at your kid's school. And also, you know, kitchen table conversations. What are you talking about with your kids and your family? And are you also potentially reflecting on who you invite over for dinner when you have those parties, right? Those are all things you can do if you have kids. Or if you go to a workplace, things to ask and, and notice are, well, who's on your teams? How are people being paid? Who are the people at the decision-making table? You know, Misasha, to your example earlier, who is getting spoken over in meetings? What resumes are being tossed out because of the sound of the names on them? If you have, you know, the ability to look at vendors, are they all the same sorts of people? But what would it look like and what would it take to get more diversity? What do the faces of people on your company's website look? I mean, these are all things you can do in a workplace. I love those examples because they're so concrete and they might seem small, but they are really powerful. So let's give some more. What if you're in charge of your family's money, right? The family wallet. Think about where you spend that money. Are you spending it at all big box stores of corporations that don't really care for its people equally? Or maybe you're really tempted by free two-day shipping on a lot of stuff. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. You know, think about the values of some of these companies and choose to spend money or choose to not spend money based on how equitable and supportive they are to all people. And on that end, consider buying from a small, maybe woman-owned or Black-owned or Indigenous-owned business for, let's say, those housewarming gifts that you want to bring by. Choose where you put your money. Also, choose and wisely when it comes to voting, especially if you have the privilege of being able to vote in this country, which not everyone does. Do everything you can to make sure you research the candidates and see what they think about things like prisons, gun control, women's rights, and that's just to name a few. That is not an exhaustive list. And also consider using your privilege to help others without as much. Not everybody has access to a ballot drop-off box like we do in California or Sarah, you do in Colorado for weeks before an election. Other places require cars or to get to the ballot voting places or polls or need you to take days off work in order to do that. So see what you can do to help because again, to sum this whole episode up, real allyship is in the doing. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media and yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book, but the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to dearwhitewomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>